Let's continue worshiping by opening up God's Word to Matthew 28. And let's continue talking about the greatness of our God. And today, this truth, our God is triune. Now, there are a lot of things in life that I, I do not fully understand. One of those is electricity. So I know how to turn on the lights. I can go a little, I mean to brag, I can go a little farther than that. I can uh, turn an on, on and off a circuit breaker. Uh, a number of years ago, I actually replaced a couple of sockets in the house, so I've done that. But beyond that, I don't understand electricity. And, uh, but I know it works, I believe in it, even though I don't fully comprehend it. If you told me, Jim, I need you just to build a small power plant, I, I, I don't. I wouldn't know where to start. I have no idea. Another thing I don't understand, and this is old technology, I don't understand how a telephone works. And uh, I know it works. I believe in it. I, I'm even amazed by this. To this day, when I'm talking to somebody on the other side of the earth and we have virtually no delay, how in the world is this sound reaching my loved one on the other side of the earth with no delay? I don't understand. Now, I do understand these things are knowable. I'm just not that interested. I could YouTube it this afternoon. In fact, I'm worried that one of you is going to go, Jim, this is easy. Let me, let me explain the phone. Let's meet this week. Let me break it down on paper. I'm really not that interested. I don't, I don't want to be taught. But today we're going to talk about a topic about God that defies easy explanation, but it's absolutely essential that you know it. And this is worth the effort to understand this about God. Now, understanding we're not going to fully comprehend this as we talk about God's triune nature today, but we do need to grasp it. And so my goal today is that you see this. I want you to see it from the scriptures. I want you to embrace it. Now, we've talked about a number of the attributes of God. Some of these attributes are relatable to us. So, for instance, we have talked about the love of God. Well, it's beyond us how God is love, how perfect in love he is, but, but you and I love, we know something of that. We're created in his image. We know what, it, what it's like to love someone so much. You'd be willing to sacrifice them. So when we talk about God being loving, at least we have a handle for that one. Or when we talk about God's holiness, when they, all right, I know I'm commanded to be holy like he's holy through the Holy Spirit. He's pulling me away from some things that I used to be. And so we can get a glimpse of what it means to be in the light rather than the darkness. And yet God is perfectly holy. And so that's beyond us, but at least we have a bit of a handle on that. Or as knowledge, we know what it means to know something. Of course, God way beyond us in knowing everything, even our thoughts. And, and so he's amazing. But then we come to some of his attributes and we say, really, this one's incomprehensible to me. Let, one example, on our way to Trinity, one example is God being omnipresent. We have no frame of reference for that one. Our whole existence has been one person, one place. And the best we can do is maybe Skype somebody somewhere, but we're still not really there, and yet God is omnipresent. Well, here we come to God's triune nature, that God is one being, but three distinct persons at the same time. Here, here's a definition of the Trinity by Wayne Grudem. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Mind blown already even at the beginning. Or Erickson said this in his systematic theology, God is one, yet there are three who are God. Mind blown. So people through the years have tried to come up with some analogies. And, and here at the front, I would main, mention to you that these analogies are ultimately not helpful. 
In fact, in some cases, these analogies get you into theological trouble. You can actually run into heresy playing with some of the analogies. But I understand the desire for analogies. And through the years, I've tried to use these as well, but I've backed away from all of them. One analogy that's famous is from St. Patrick that God is like the three-leaf clover, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I appreciate the, the attempt just to explain that there's, there's plurality in the Godhead. But nevertheless, that doesn't help because God is not, the Son is not part of God. And the Spirit is not part of God. And the Father is not part of God. Some have tried to use the egg. It's one, but there are three parts. Once again, do you hear the problem? We're, we're talking parts here. A shell, a white, and a yolk. That doesn't help us understand the nature of God. Some have tried to use that these are roles. That there's just like one person can be a husband and a father and an employer. Same person, but now you're getting into roles. And you can quickly get into the theological heresy of modalism. That God just is in different roles at different times. And that's not the biblical teaching. The one I used to use but no longer is the one where God is like water and can be in three different forms and you can have vapor and solid and liquid. But here again, you can get into trouble where you're talking about at different times these different things and, and that's not at all the biblical teaching. These all fall short. And besides, God is not an object. We're talking about one God who eternally exists in three persons simultaneously. Now, there are some objections to the Trinity and, and those who are in theological cults like Jehovah's Witnesses will, will not believe this. In fact, one of their gotcha statements, so they think, is this. Well, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. But that's not a gotcha statement. My response to them has always been, well, the word missions is not in the Bible either. That term, missions. But we see missions throughout the New Testament. And this is what we call it when you see churches being planted, people going to distant places for the sake of the gospel. We, we call that missions. The word doesn't have to be there to see the truth of missions throughout the New Testament. It's the context of the New Testament. I would add this. The word omniscient is not in the Bible. But this is what, what we call it when you see God who knows everything. He even knows the thoughts of men. He knows our words before we speak it. He knows the future as well as he knows the past. What do you call that? We, we have a term for that. We call that omniscient. The word doesn't have to be in the text for the truth to be there. And so it is with Trinity. That's the theological term that we use to describe what we see coming up from the scriptures that I'm going to walk us through here in a moment. And again, the goal this morning is that we see this. This is worth the effort as we go through verse after verse. And, and I told you Matthew 28, we're going to get there eventually. Trust me, we'll get there. But first I want to show you some other things. First of all, if we're going to understand Trinity, let's affirm together that God is one. So we are not polytheists. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. Now I could give you many, many different texts for this. I have 16 examples in my notes, but I'm only going to give you five out loud because of the sake of time. So Deuteronomy 4.35, just making the point, God is one. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown to you that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no one besides him, one God. Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Or how about Isaiah 45.5? I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It's also a New Testament truth. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Just making the point that God is one. You have to know that about God. We are monotheists. 
Now, there are plenty of polytheists in the world, and so among them are our Hindu neighbors and our Hindu friends. And, and just, let me just say, we love our Hindu neighbors. I hope you love them and pray for them that they would know the one true God. But our Hindu friends, they believe in 330 million gods, among them Hanuman, that monkey god. There's Ganesh, Shiva, Kali, Vishnu, Lakshmi, and many, many, many others, and expressed through many, many idols. And so again, pray for those who have this wrong view of God, that they might come to know the one true God who gave his son to save them from their sins. But even the Mormons are polytheists. And very intentionally, I'm mentioning them because their temple's coming up down the road. And, and don't let the name Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints fool you. It is no church, and it's not of the biblical Jesus at all. Mormons believe in many, many gods. At the doorstep, they'll say, no, no, we worship one God, but that's wordplay. They do say that we're just worshiping this one God, but there are many, and every good Mormon is trying to become a God. By going through their Mormon rituals, they're trying to become a God and one day have their own planet and populate it with their wives. Joseph Smith taught this. This isn't evangelical propaganda against Mormons. This is what comes from their own teaching. So Joseph Smith said this, you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you. That's Joseph Smith. How about Brigham Young? The Mormon prophet said this, he is our father, the father of our spirits, and was once a man in mortal flesh as we are, and is now an exalted being. How many gods are there? I do not know, but there never was a time when there were not gods and worlds, and when men were not passing through the same ordeals that we are now passing through. That's heretical, that's dangerous, it's not Christianity. The Bible teaches that God is one. So when we speak of Trinity, we do not mean that there are three gods. We're not polytheists, we're not tritheists. Neither are we saying that there's God the Father and at some point he created the Son and created the Holy Spirit. No, no, they are co-equal, co-eternal. And so now I wanna show us, we've seen that God is one. I wanna show us now the text where we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mentioned together. And you're gonna see the equality of them in the text. So Matthew 28, at last, the passage most famously we turn to for the Great Commission Peter, I just want you to see the listing of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together as equal. <clears throat> Here's Jesus, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Here it is, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not just there. 1 Corinthians 12, in the context of talking about spiritual gifts, we read this, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of facts, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Other examples, but we could go to 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Or Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, 
building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So repeatedly we see in the scriptures, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit listed together, and they are listed as to their equality. So let's just to play with that a little bit, let's think about it. If you were to add any other name to that listing of three, would it make any sense at all? What if somebody said, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Moses? He said, no. Of course, Moses would have thought that was a horrible idea too. But then, no, Moses, a mere man, a prophet, but a mere man. It makes no sense. Or how about the Father, Son, and Gabriel? No, Gabriel, a created being, he's, he's an angel. Or how about going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Paul? Paul also be mortified at the idea, but he doesn't belong there. He's a mere man, or, or even father, son, and Mary, as many are apt to venerate Mary, does not belong there, a human being. So God is three in one. Three persons of the Godhead are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love how this, the Bible even shows you that there's communication and interaction within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, there's this exciting occasion where you see this at work. So you see Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, at the baptism of Jesus. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So here's God the Son. After being baptized, Jesus came immediately up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And now this. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this isn't God changing forms. It's not that God sometimes is the Father, sometimes is the Son, sometimes is the Spirit. He's quickly just changing forms. It's not that. Here's the Father speaking to the Son and the Spirit here descending on him. Three distinct, eternally existing persons of the Godhead. So God is one. We've seen that. We also learned there, though God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But to see this again and a little bit deeper is to see the deity of each person of the Trinity. And so let's do this together. So first of all, you notice that even in the book of Genesis and also in Isaiah in the Old Testament, we get this glimpse that there's something going on with God that he's not exactly like us, that there's a plurality within the singular God. So for instance, in Genesis 1.26, we read this, but we understand it now through the Trinity. Genesis 1, first chapter of the Bible. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But not just there, but also in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. So now let's look at the deity of the Father. This won't take us any time at all because that's indisputable that God the Father is God. We read about him in the very beginning, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus taught us to talk to God as Father. Remember? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is Father. So we know that the Father is God. But how about now the deity of Jesus? Is it true that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity? One of the best places to see that is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. By the way, this is worth the effort. We need to see this. John 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now catch this. And the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You say, how, how do I know that's Jesus? Go down to verse 14, John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or how about when Jesus was raised from the dead, and all the disciples saw him but Thomas. And then eight days later, Thomas gets to see the risen Savior. And what did he say? He said, my Lord and my God. Thomas had it right. Or how about the book of Hebrews? We're just talking about Jesus is deity. Hebrews 1, this is thrilling, verses 1 through 8. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And, it, and he is the radiance of his glory. Catch this. And the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he's inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, I will be a father to him and he shall be my, a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Just making the point that Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So, so the Father is deity. The Son is deity. Jesus even made statements that made it clear he understood himself to be God in the flesh. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Or how about these I am statements of Jesus? John 8, 58, where he says, before Abraham was born. That's stunning in itself. Before Abraham was born, I am. That statement God used in Exodus 3 of himself. Jesus attributes it to himself. Or how about this one? I am the light of the world. If anybody in your life stepped in the room and said, I'm the light of the world, you think, what? You are claiming to be God. And Jesus certainly understood, I am the A prophet would say, he's the light of the world. Jesus was able to say, truthfully, I'm the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus told people that they needed to believe in him. Only God speaks that way. Jesus even told people that I'm forgiving your sins. Only God can talk that way. Jesus even called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. How about the deity of the Holy Spirit? How do we know that? Well, the Bible reveals that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Also, in the very first chapter of the Bible, we read about the Holy Spirit. There in Genesis chapter 1. Throughout the Old Covenant, we read of the Spirit of God doing great things according to His power. And then in the New Covenant, we read of the Holy Spirit even coming to indwell believers. Here's what Jesus said in John 15, 26 and 27. Jesus speaking to his disciples said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. There again you see the interplay of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit even in the promise of the coming of the Spirit. So understand this, the Spirit, when we speak of him, he is not a mere force. 
The Spirit of God is not some force. It's not God's power. He is a person. So never refer to the Spirit as it. This whole, the Holy Spirit is He. It's interesting in the Greek grammar, the word for Spirit is pneuma. It's a neuter word, and so you would expect a neuter pronoun to go with that, it. But it's never that way. It's always the Spirit, He. He, He, He is a person. Now, do, do we know He is divine? Yes, we see this in a couple of places. So Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps you know this from Acts chapter 5, when they lied to the church about a gift they were making. Here's what we read. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, catch it, to lie to the Holy Spirit? Remember that as we continue. And to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so God, Holy Spirit, used interchangeably here. Or how about this? How believers are told that you are a temple of God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Or 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Notice how Paul uses that you are a temple of God, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning the exact same thing. In fact, who has temples but God? So we're seeing that there is one God who exists as three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same divine essence. There's perfect unity within the Godhead, within the Trinity. We even see that there is love being expressed and experienced within the Trinity from eternity past. Jesus spoke this way in John 17, 24. He said, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, let's pause here and let's just ask, what do we do with this truth? Well, first of all, you and I should just go, wow, wow. This, this is beyond us. We've seen it in the scriptures. We still couldn't explain it fully, but there it is. And we say, wow, God, there is nobody like you. We, we've talked through this series that God is great. Is there anyone greater than this? I mean, we've had our minds blown just with his omniscience. How can you possibly, his omnipresence, how can he be fully present everywhere? I can't explain those. And then we come to his triune nature. We think, wow, God, there's nobody like you. It just should lead us to praise him, to worship him with great, great joy. Secondly, what should I do with this? I should embrace it. Even, even though unable to fully grasp how God is different than us, we're one being, one person, and yet God's one being, three persons. How is he like that? I, I embrace it. Listen, it's critical that you do because your view of Jesus gets weird really fast if you don't embrace the triune nature of God. You won't understand who Jesus is. You'll be like so many of the cults who lower Jesus as something other than God in the flesh if you don't embrace the Trinity. Same thing with the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? If you don't embrace the triune nature of God, you'll have some low, weird view of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you won't even understand salvation if you have a wrong view of who God is. J.I. Packer said this, the Trinity is the basis of the gospel. And the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. So understand this, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, active, God and his three persons active in your salvation. In fact, we see it in places like Ephesians 1. We see the Father electing, 
the Son saving and the Spirit sealing. So a triune God set in motion a plan to save you before the foundation of the world. But this is an area where false teachers do attack. There's one attack at this, the whole idea that Jesus took your punishment on the cross. That's led some liberal theologians to say things like this. Well, that would be divine child abuse. That's just horrible. But that's a misunderstanding of the Trinity as if Jesus is a victim of the Father's plan. Like he wasn't really a part of the plan. No, it's true. The Bible does say that the Father sent his son. The Father gave his son. But in the scriptures, we also see the son laying down his life for us and taking his life up again. There's, there's no disagreement within the Godhead about the plan. The crucifixion of Jesus was the plan of our triune God. Everybody's on board. God's on board with this. No disagreement. This is the resurrection. Jesus also the plan of our triune God. And so what do we do with this? Wow. Secondly, embrace what the scripture is telling us about who God is. And then third, how about this? Respond to his love. That God set in motion a plan to save you. Have you responded to his love? A God more amazing than perhaps you've ever realized loves you. A God greater than your mind can comprehend has, has offered to save you and to adopt you into his family. How, how thrilling is that? An eternal triune God is inviting you into his eternal love. That love that's been enjoyed between the Father, Son, Son, and Spirit from eternity past, God through his Son is inviting you to come into that eternal love for eternity all into the future. So will you respond to the love of God? That Jesus died for you. That the Holy Spirit is drawing you. Maybe you ask, how do I know that the Holy Spirit's drawing me? One of the ways you know that he's drawing you is you're becoming aware of your sin. That you know something's not right. It used to not bother you the way you sin. And now you're bothered by that. What's happening to you? Oh God, the Spirit is drawing you to himself. He's opening your eyes to things that you were blind to before. That you might see your sin. That you now care, that concern that's growing in you is evidence that God loves you and he's making you concerned that you might come to him because indeed God the Son died on a cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. That if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. This is the love of God. And so will you respond to him? How, how do you respond? In prayer, repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus alone to save you. That, that's your move. That's your mood, a trust in Jesus. And then, yes, you're going to want to be baptized. And so that takes us back to Matthew 28. You think, what's going to happen? Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him. And then grow in him. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Pray with me. Lord, this indeed, this truth about you is mind-blowing. There's a point at which we just have to step back and go, wow, cannot, cannot grasp you fully. But even that thrills us. Lord, there's so much about you we can't grasp. How is it that you're perfectly holy and, Lord, we still struggle with sin and temptation. And you're so perfect in love and we struggle to love. We're so day-to-day -day with our ability to love. And you're perfect in it. And then, Lord, you're trying your nature. We can't pretend that we fully understand all this. But, but, God, we clearly see it in your word. And we embrace this truth. And, Lord, I pray that we would worship you in response to this truth. That we would embrace and hold to this core bedrock doctrine about you. And then, Lord, we would respond to you. That we would draw close to you. What a, what a wonderful promise that if we 
draw near to you. You draw near to us. Thank you for the offer of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.